Hey, what's up? This is Menle Golakai Agri. And this is Lauren Yoshiko, and you're listening to Broccoli Talk, a podcast for cannabis lovers. Hello, what's up? Hi. It's October. I've been watching um, a lot of scary movies and rewatching Game of Thrones like I think a lot of other people are. Ooh. But I'm also just now reliving that like 2014 era. Did you ever watch Game of Thrones? Shockingly, no, y'all. Oh, shit. I have to make this confession. I've I've never seen it. Oh, my God. You're one of those special people. I just saw a tweet that was like, anybody who has not seen Game of Thrones, they are the strongest willed people among us. Like they are they are impervious to peer pressure. They completely do their own. <laughs> yeah. OK. Have you been watching any scary movies? I saw Nope which was very exciting that it was airing here in Mexico. I didn't even know it was in the theaters. I hadn't heard of it. It was exhilarating. I liked that there was a fantasy aspect. I'm so glad you got to see it on the big screen. Yeah. And I was blaze. I brought my vape. Hell yes. What a feeling of awe. Like yeah. I just, none of us had ever seen anything like that. And like, what a wonderful audience experience. Very emotive. Ugh. It was beautiful. I did not realize that we were going to be talking about this, but... Um... Uh, that will be another podcast we start that is just born and then, like <laughs> watching movies four months after they come out. <laughs> we're going to have to. We're going to have to. No, but I, I do really enjoy Halloween. Obviously, there's Dia de Muertos happening and... A slew of people are hitting me up like, hey, Minlay, where should I stay? What should I do? And I, I shoot over the link to my drive doc with just all the recommendations. And I'm like, just send a tip because this is so well curated. You have no idea how special this is. So it's exciting to be able to share that with people. And I don't know, this time of year, the gore and the blood, it is almost perfect timing because Chula and Barberry have just launched period days. Yes. Which is, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's one of the first, if ever, like spliff pre-rolls for your period designed specifically for period, period cramp sort of uterus pains and um, I'm excited about it. I can't wait for you to take some puffs. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm just here for it. I'm here for this season. I'm here for the blood, the gore, the critical thinking, all of it. This period days thing I think is the first, to my knowledge, a pre-roll in that sense and I'm super excited. Also their little custom package is super cool for it too. They're beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, we also have to touch on things in the broccoli universe, yes. It is a time of abundance in the broccoli world. I feel like we just released three new treasures into the universe. Yes. For all the mushroom lovers out there, we created the Mushroom Oracle, which is a 44-card deck guidebook designed to help you sort of interpret your world through mycelial thinking. Yes. You know, mushrooms hold a huge connection and power, and this Oracle deck is sort of created to help reveal how you connect to your environment, other humans, and yourself. I am so stoked. I never was uh, versed in tarot, so this is like a fresh, a fresh start for me to not feel too intimidated. So cool. The illustrations are incredible. And then we also have a new book to share. It's called Once Upon a High Time, and it's a magical collection of weedy fairy tales. <sighs> I know. Gasp. 
I remember one weedy fairy tale from a past issue that so simply, so poetically conveyed like what it feels like to love weed. And I just remember crying in a park reading it. It was just so perfect. I think that one will be in there and you'll probably recognize a few others with a special cannabis twist. Some are completely original works of fiction from the minds of our amazing contributors. This book is truly from another realm paired with stunning art. It is incredible. Okay, but one more exciting bit. Broccoli issue 16, Sweet 16, has just landed. In this issue, policy shaper Dashida Dawson shares her vision of a truly equitable industry. Cannabonsai brings new life into an ancient art form, and we get spooked in Cindy Bernhard's eerie interiors. Mm. We also gently immerse ourselves in cozy games and step off the path into shadowy realms where goblins dwell. Plus, breaking up with weed, a quantum leap into the garden of cosmic speculation. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. Unicorn lore (laughs) through the ages. I know it's so much. And a cross-joint tutorial from Taiwan. There is nothing like a broccoli magazine table of contents. It's like the most dreamy Mad Lib. (laughs) It is. I think that's the perfect way to describe it. It's so good. There's a lot in there. Everything is available on the shiny new website at broccolimag.com. It's launching. Yes. So, Lauren, who did you talk to for this episode? I talked to Nathan Casalino, the co-founder of Rose Los Angeles, an edible brand that makes gummy delights with real ingredients from farms across California. I don't know if you guys have tried them before, but you've probably seen some imagery of those adorable little, they're like, Turkish Delight Squares was the initial sort of inspo, I think. But every gummy they infuse with flower rosin. It's the oil that's been extracted by using a lot of heat and pressure to press raw buds. Um, And that's sort of unique to their edibles. They made a delicious root beer-ish flavored one with candy cap mushrooms uh, with broccoli a while back, if you guys remembered. But Nathan reached out to me a couple months ago, sort of out of the blue, to talk about the state of things in California because things have gotten pretty gnarly. (laughs) Things have definitely gotten gnarly and they have been for such a long time. But what isn't gnarly are Rose Delights. I mean, they are my (laughs) most coveted, coveted edibles. I keep them securely closed up in a back sort of drawer in my kitchen because they're so delicious and they're such a treat. And I think it's rough to hear when companies like this that are putting so much care into the art form of delights, literally. Yeah. And I want to note that like, we enjoy their edibles as people who have eaten a lot of weed-infused things, but this is not at all a sponsored episode. No. Nathan cares a lot about what's going on, and so do we. And when he reached out, it was like, bing, this is how we have a vehicle to share how consumers can play a really active role in helping turning things around. Because right now, wholesale prices are insanely low in California compared to other states. And it happened on a much faster scale than, you know, the similar oversupply that has happened in Colorado, Oregon, Canada. But there's so much money to be made in California. It's such a desirable market that it's just on this insane scale. And little operators competing with multi-million dollar big dogs and equally large illegal grows are hanging on by like their last fingertips. So 
Nathan started hearing from his suppliers for his edibles that some of them were like, I honestly may not be around next year. Like, I won't be able to hold on much longer if price if wholesale prices stay or go lower than four hundred dollars, which. Yeah. yeah, And it sounds like things are even dipping from there for some sun grown folks. What's interesting is Nathan decided to do something with Rose's clout. And besides Menley and I being fans, I mean, they've been written up in Vanity Fair like they are a better known brand out there. So they started their own kind of white labeling program, and it helps small growers move flour as well as retains a pricing structure that pays growers closer to what they deserve. So this conversation is going to cover all of that and kind of just break down what's going on a little more and why it matters and how it can totally happen in other states if we're not careful. But we're also going to talk about some harvest time memories because he has grown weed for years. And I want him to help me capture the the cannabis culture of small sun-grown growers in California that is at stake of being lost if these mom-and-pop operators go extinct. Yeah. You know, it's really giving the like 2020-2021 Indian farmers protest, right, in terms of how do we find these solutions? Like, what does the market look like? Why are things capped in certain ways? It's This is such a rich conversation to have, and I'm really looking forward to, yeah, listening to it. You're exactly right. It's like the question of agriculture. Yeah. Do we care how our food is grown? Like, that is literally what's at stake right now like do we care if anything ever gets grown under the sun again do we care if the people growing it have any connection to it and uh that's a big chat so i'm really excited about this one let's get it as it is harvest time i always think about outdoor sun-grown weed harvests starting to, well, stress in my case this time of year where the plants are needing to get checked like every day, getting close to that point where it's time to cut them down and uh, start the big process of the trim. What does this time of the cannabis year bring to mind for you? Yeah, I guess that sense of anticipation and, and growing wave of uncertainty because, you know, how we relate to this time of year now is different than 10, 5, 15 years ago. Um, it just means something different because of the recreational market um, and not just an illicit traditional market. Nobody knows what to expect uh, after October um, into the new year. Farmers don't know whether or not um, the way things shake out ep- economically is going to be sustainable for them. You know, there's a lot of uh, nervous anticipation over what they grew. Um, Sometimes things look amazing in the ground and they look amazing cured. Sometimes there's rains towards the end of the season. It's just kind of everything's up in the air um, at this point. To me now, um, working more on the brand side of things, I think uh, I'm less in contact and sensitive. Rose has a mother and son growing team, uh, Wendy Sinclair and Monty Lassley. And and those guys are on the ground, like really dealing with the, the day-to-day hustle and, and bustle of wrapping up a harvest season. You never know which harvests are going to be viable. And it sort of just like proves out at some point. My first harvest, we had really none of us had experience. Everything was like Google University ordered seeds from like an unknown Dutch company online for a medical farm in, in 2014. And 
figuring it out as that step came. Like once September rolled around, it was like, all right, let's let's learn how to know when it's time to cut them down. And then when uh, this time of year hit, Oregon got a surprise little monsoon moment and it just dumped rain and we didn't have any coverings at all. So it was like, all right, it's time to cut then. And we hadn't thought through how to carry them from the farm to the shed that was about a, you know, a good little walk. And we thought we were brilliant cutting in these V-shapes that we could string along poles that we carried over our shoulders. And then we accidentally drag all the best buds in the mud at the bottom. (laughs) Sounds smart enough to me. Yeah, that was my first uh, harvest. Do you have some, I know you grew cannabis in the past. What are some harvest moments from those 5, 10, 15 year marks that stand out in your memory? By the way, I don't think anything's changed. I think everybody's still dragging their butts (laughs) through the mud. So um, yeah, we've come, we've come a long way and uh, we haven't come far at all. Um, (laughs) When I think about harvest and and you know my involvement in a sun-grown harvest like out on a rural property i think of uh willets and leightonville um and the first farm i ever worked on in my early 20s almost 20 years ago and how we were living then um and how like young and and open and, and clueless and excited and hopeful and irresponsible and unprofessional and um we we were we were um you know we were like a a group of kids that were essentially just like squatting in a plywood box that was supposed to be a house at one point but um the harvest before the construction workers burnt out um and decided they didn't feel like they were going to be um, adequately compensated so they stole the whole harvest or a good portion of it the year before and they left, uh, they left what was, was to be a cabin um, in literally the, the form of just a plywood box. with um, it, There wasn't even a door. It was a, a sheet of plywood that you would have to slide to get into the plywood box. There was a wood-burning stove in there, and we cooked all of our dinners for everybody that was working there on that. I love that. And we all slept on the floor in sleeping bags, and it felt fine. Um, it you know it was like a sleepover and in the, the hangout, and we were kids. And the property belonged to a guy named Gerhard Peterson. Apparently, the guy um, there was no birth records of him. He had lived his entire life oh, off grid. Oh my god! He had no social security number. Legend. I remember. I'm just I'm stream of consciousness right now because it's all kind of just coming back to me because I haven't thought about it in a long time. It's so funny. It's amazing. I remember one night um, all, you know, drinking ourselves to sleep and smoking ourselves to sleep. And uh, before we went to bed, uh, a friend of mine who had made the salad and had cut some jalapeno peppers to throw in it because at that time um, we were just so hippie. Everything was a bowl of raw vegetables and um, you just, <laughs> you just totally. chewed through like Sounds livestock. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we went to bed, um, with, uh, my friend Nick, like his eye burning from rubbing jalapeno juice into it. And we woke, um, that was the last thing I remember before falling asleep. And we wake up and there's a torch like through the crack in the plywood door. And we hear, um, shouts and it's like, Sam and Craig, that was the couple we were working with. Like, this is Gerhard Peterson and I'm here with William Shockley. And, um, (laughs) he was coming to confront us about squatting on his property which he granted us the permission to do and he's like i told i told you you could grow this many plants not build a cabin and shit in my creek (laughs) 
This is like an a scene from A Brother Where Art Thou in my mind. It, it was, and Sam and Craig were like huddled up crying, holding each other. <laughs> Actually, I do remember, I think Sam walked outside and to, she's like, let me handle this. And Craig like hid in the back of the cat, the, ca- the ca- quote unquote cabin. And there was just lots of yelling. Like you couldn't really understand what anyone was saying, not because they were yelling over each other or anything. Just no one was making sense. <laughs> just this Wild West confrontation. Yeah, Wild West confrontation. And then Sam, oh my God. Then Samma comes back in um, from fighting with William Shockley and Gerhard Peterson. Mind you, their names might not have even been that. In my memory, that's what their names were. Um, and they had a group of kids that some of them were biological children called the Mountain Boys that were just these dreaded kids on quad runners bare in bare feet with no shirts um, that would just kind of roam the property. And they were like the governance of this this like piece of land. Perfect. And so Sam comes back in to like all of us and she's she's bawling and and the whole like um, group of little like transient kids <laughs> circle around her and put like lay lay hands on her and just repeat in unison, you have my supportive energy. <laughs> the surreal vignette of the old days. What do Broccoli Talk episodes in your period have in common? They both come once a month. Unfortunately, the latter also comes with cramps, lower back pain, sore boobs, and migraines. But now, say enough to period pain with enough period. This new CBD-infused body care line is devoted to making periods less painful. Enough Period's first product is a cycle support balm called The Ritual. At 1,200 milligrams of full-spectrum CBD, each two-ounce jar packs more than double the potency of leading CBD balms, plus the calming scent of lavender, cedarwood, peppermint, and patchouli. The Ritual is made with non-GMO, pesticide-free, organic hemp grown on small, family-run U.S. farms. And a portion of its proceeds go to the Last Prisoner Project and the Period Movement, working to end cannabis injustice and period poverty. Develop a new relationship with your period. Get 30% off your first purchase with the code ENOUGH. That's E-N-U-F. Head to Enough Period, E-N-U-F-P-E-R-I-O-D dot com. But we were growing up a canyon and the ground was all like granite. So there's a lot of like pickaxing through granite to prepare the beds and hiking in these amendments. It puts a lot more of what you first said in context. Like, no wonder you feel pretty separate from (laughs) the harvest seasons of your past because you were literally pickaxing at granite, was it? Yeah, yeah, granite. That is some serious business. I, I mean, you have this wealth of anecdotal knowledge and experience of of what a surreal chapter of cannabis cultivation and now you run an edibles company like ultimately so so above board super super compliant you have i mean you have to be i imagine doing cbd and licensed stuff in california yeah it's interesting that you've bring this grower's knowledge to this modern edibles company and even though your harvest seasons now are probably more filled with like emails and design approvals than than worrying about when to get the plants down i wanted to talk to you about 
your your ongoing relationships with your sun-grown growers because from my understanding much of the sources if not all for your edibles the raw material is coming from sun-grown growers is that right um almost all of the time except for rare um, special collaborations with friends who have light footprint boutique indoor grows can i ask why because i know that indoor is often considered superior on the market and i would love to hear why it's worth it for rose why sun-grown um common sense not to like be annoying but um why would we grow indoor flower in california when it's when it's recreational legal and you can and you can do it with a license if you're growing unlicensed um and you want to grow indoor flower to exploit um pound price premiums for indoor flower then that makes sense if you're an illegal grower um, do do that um but um if you're if you're producing for the recreational cannabis market um, there is so much available um, agriculture land that's um, av- available and ready to be planted turnkey or that, you know, if you have the time, energy, vision, hope to invest in it um, and uh, make it viable agricultural property, you know, bring, bring life to a fairly dead property, which is what we did in the case of the Rose Farm. We took a pretty dead field of decomposed granite and clay just sectioned it off and worked little bit by little bit until we would convert more of the property um, into lush viable garden. When there's so much of this land available um, and there's already so much really beautiful sun-grown flower being grown by experienced farmers, gardeners, I say farmers, but farmers, I, that, like when you go visit these properties, you're like, this This is a garden. Um, it, like you could use the word farm loosely, but um, you know, at the scale that these people are growing, it feels much more like um, in intimate garden setting than it does any kind of industrial farm. Uh, there's so much flower being grown and we're not making good use of what's already being cultivated. Um, tons of it is getting right. composted and thrown away. Um, and why? So we can consume more energy to cultivate indoor flower. Why not pause indoor cultivation um, in consideration of the footprint that it has um, and make use of the knowledge and uh, legacy stories and quality flower that's being grown in all these sun-grown gardens across the state, um, rather than supporting VC-backed indoor grows and putting all these sun-grown growers out of business. Close your eyes and imagine what it would look like if all the grapes uh, grown in California for winemaking were grown indoors under lights, um, and what like the infrastructural build out to support that sort of approach to grape cultivation for winemaking. It's absurd and doesn't doesn't really serve any smart purpose. And then outside of the cost, the logic, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said in a state with an insane drought that's lasted decades and limited amount of resources in many different places. But aside from that, as a processor now, as you look at these plants, tell me what you really see, like the difference between I've, I've heard both sides. Like I know that you, you know, being able to control indoor climates and, and fine tune exact humidity and temperature and all of that can be favorable for certain strains. And I've also heard that when you plant a seed in the ground, you cannot match the fortitude it will give it being having roots that actually get real wind and real sun, real rain. 
that that grows stronger plants that have stronger effects. What have you seen in your experience? That, um, seen a lot of that, seen um, a lot of seed plants, uh, plants that have been grown from seed next to plants that have been grown from clone. And um, you just see in front of your eyes what nature does with nature when you let it self-regulate. Um, and yeah, the fortitude that those plants have, um, they're resilient, they're um, just like dense, heavy, um, you know, prolific plants. And I understand the appeal of indoor. I think it's like a fun, a fun hobby to have to attempt to emulate nature and how the need to grow indoors while cannabis cultivation was illegal um, just sort of gave an opportunity for this indoor flower culture to um, exist and, and evolve. And um, it's all it's all interesting and it's all part of the story. And I do think indoor flower has a place. And I think that place should be 5 to 10% of the total flower um, in, in a state like California. People, you know, I know the impact of an outdoor cultivation. Outdoor cultivations aren't without their consumption. Like we use a lot of water at the farm. We use very, very little inputs and in, in energy sources. And so, you know, we're not running air conditioners. We're not running dehumidifiers, obviously not running lights. Right. There's definitely a, a spectrum and of, of responsible operations. And I've definitely talked to indoor cultivators that are putting like wind turbines on their roof to be independent of the grid. And, and there are ways to make yourself more sustainable. But I also it was so shocking in doing some research for this conversation and and seeing more of these headlines to really perceive the sheer size like in talking to some of these like you know 10,000 square foot growers in the emerald triangle one of those big dog grows that have stacked a bunch of licenses in Santa Barbara equals like 60 of their farms i think that was the yeah analogy maybe it was 40 40 to 60 of their farms in one farm and that's one competitor and there's you know five to ten of that size easily and then five to ten of that size illegally realistically that everyone's also competing with and i just wanted to express that like there's barely any the the just the sheer amount of weed that people are needing to wade through to get their small sun-grown harvest, even just considered by buyers, is a feat. Yeah. I mean, they do have help from a very small handful of shops around the state that that I've mentioned to you, like Cornerstone and Soulful and Elevation 2477, and shops that understand uh, a lot about um, this reality and, and what's going on. And are doing what they can to support and give uh, an opportunity for these grows to reach the consumer, um, these small 10,000 square foot gardens to reach a consumer and also educating the consumer to um, be like, hey, this packaging might not look the slickest, this flower um, might not like have the shelf appeal of uh, this other Santa Barbara growth. Let's do a quick white label breakdown for people because in Oregon it really it really is barely even a thing yet but in California I understand it's pretty much like I would probably say the majority like like 3 quarters I feel like of the flower on shelves is white labeled how do you describe it in a concise way Yeah it's for instance it's like hey rose wants to put out flower but rose doesn't have the bandwidth or like 
capital to, I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically, um, to like launch our own cultivation operation. So somebody else do the work of growing and um, we're going to create the packaging and we're going to build in margins that work. Um, we're going to like come up with an agreement with the farm, um, which doesn't so sound so unlike um, the way like, you know, the coffee industry works. And then um, we're going to sell your flour and we might not ever highlight the team that's responsible for the cultivation or be super transparent or direct about th this relationship. You know, we might speak in terms of it's our flower. It is somebody else's flower in that jar. And that same flower is in tons of jars on that shelf, possibly. Maybe there's nothing wrong with any of that if it's done um, in like a transparent, thoughtful way. But having the relationship that I've had with growers for as long as I have and always having connection with this industry for the last 20 years and... Um, you know, there were broker personalities in the past, and, and now the brokers um, are essentially the brands. The brands are doing their brokering. They're procuring flour and selling to their selling it to their brand to use in their products, manufactured cannabis products. Um, and there was the cultivators. Um, and the cultivators of back then are still the cultivators of today, except, you know, now there's like larger, more um, corporate cultivation groups. When Rose had the opportunity to launch, and, and we did, we initially we were a packaged flower, and we were doing um, exactly what we're talking about now. We created packaging, and then we procured flour, and we put it in that packaging, we sold it to people, and it lasted like three months until I'm like, I'm bored of this. I want to go deeper, and I uh, also don't want to take credit for the um, hard work of these these growers who have been living remotely, um, you know, dedicating all of their life to doing what they do because because growing cannabis isn't a, a part time job and it's you know not not easy. You you plan it and walk away. It's like something you're having to think about every minute of every day while it's in the ground or, and after it's been harvested and it's like sitting in bins. It's still it's still on your mind because you're trying to figure out. Um, how to make sense of all the work you did over the course of the, like, you know, seven to nine months. Um, we wanted to take responsibility for the cultivation of what we consumed as a brand. To have a closer relationship to that flower, it, it changes the way you work with a plant when you've put in the work to cultivate it. For uh, in our sake with our edibles, it changes the way we cook with it. It's like um, going to the store and buying a tomato. Um, or going to the farmer's market to buy a tomato and having a conversation with the farmer, or even better, like going in your backyard, harvesting a, a tomato and using that in your salad, and like the different like relationships you have, you know, based on which tomato you're using. I, that's so funny. You initially were doing this thing and were like, hmm, okay, no thank you, and then delved into the edible realm, and then through that experience and seeing where the market's gone, You've come back to square one with the Rose Partner Flower Program to sort of like turn the white labeling concept on its head for the growers. Exactly. And I mean, to be honest, I'm equally as proud of um, the accomplishment of our growers when they grow a really nice flower. And I'm excited to, to put their name on the packaging. And when we send out our menus, um, it's not Rose Flower. It's like Rose Partner Farm Flower. And there's one page bios about the farm and we want people to understand who these farms are. Um, and that's to me um, as interesting as anything that we could uh, accomplish, taking responsibility for the agricultural side of things. These guys have tons of experience and their stories are 
interesting and they are what um, attracted me to cannabis and what has kept me engaged all these years. Do you think that this problem that has happened so quickly and dropped the price so quickly, I know that California is a unique beast because it is so attractive to investors and anyone wanting to lay claim, but I'm curious, do you see that this could happen in other states? Um, it's so funny with New York um, kind of coming online right now and Massachusetts performing well and Michigan. It's a bit confusing how it will play out. I mean, I think it could happen anywhere. Um, so far on the East Coast, I'm not hearing many rumors of, of it happening in any rec market. A lot of California brands are being drawn to these East Coast markets. New York is used to illegal delivery. That's That's their model. And that's the way everybody in New York's getting weed for a long time. And those guys are are clever people who are running those those deliveries and they have time to develop brands or to offer interesting product and if they're able to undercut the retailers then that's like maybe um, a competition and there'll be like a little bit of a war there but the decisions New York makes with you know the amount of licenses are going to allow and the scale of those operations and and how the illicit market uh, weighs in and, and plays a factor any of those things are um, totally unpredictable right now. The price of a pound to me is worth about $800 for A, a buds and for small buds, uh, you know, let's say two or $300. You know, like I'm fine paying for um, a $30 bottle of wine when I walk down to a wine store, I'm fine paying $800 a pound um, for flour for, for the foreseeable future. I want to capture for out-of-state listeners and really just everyone who may be just younger and doesn't have as many references to the parts of cannabis culture that I believe do draw hugely from this community in California of small growers that have grown in the sun for at least one or seven generations. No, I, I just want to try to to capture a little bit of like what is the culture that you would say these folks are perpetuating? Like, what what would we lose if these small growers who care cannot survive? Um, the value of the plant, everything that it has to offer, ultimately. The, the plant is powerful and offers a lot when cultivated using traditional methods, I believe. That's, um, you know, I'm someone who had cancer in my 20s who used cannabis for that reason from time to time to treat the symptoms of chemotherapy and other treatments um, using cannabis than anything else that was being prescribed at the hospital for me. So um, I have that type of relationship with the plant. I didn't always. Um, also, I believe that like the plant and people responsible for working it, um, there's a lot of feeling there. And um, if you um, erase that feeling, um, so do you erase the power of the plant as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so that's what's at risk. You know, we all can um, drink industrial um, beer for the rest of our lives or uh, industrially produced cheeses. And, you know, you can close your eyes and, and believe that, that there's some value in there for, for you and it, it, offers, um, it offers something meaningful. And so can you with cannabis. But I believe that if everything just transformed into industrially produced product, the environmental impact is is going to be too severe. Um, we, you know, like like all other um, agriculture categories, 
um, you, you kill your land um, and you um, deplete your natural resources, um, eventually you don't have anything usable to cultivate healthy food and, and um, consumables to sustain human life. Learning about cannabis, I've always said, has taught me to care about what I put into my body in, in ways that I had never considered before, even being like liberal raised and, and environmentally conscious human. Like I always recycled when I was young, but I didn't really think about like where things were before they came into the grocery store and into my hands. And weed, it helped me perceive the farm to table connection in a much, much realer way. Boy, I do think that cheese analogy, maybe I'd get more legs with that. I need to, that's that's like, I hope that sticks with people between the thought, like imagine a world where there is no more niche cheeses and then imagine a world where all the vineyards of your mental mindscape are big white roofed warehouses and if if those visuals and palette imaginings don't bother you then then keep we can just keep doing what we're doing so along with taking those just pitch perfect analogies everywhere people go what can our listeners tell their listeners and friends and what can they do themselves what are the moves here in terms of cannabis um I really think like the best things that um, people can do is like take take responsibility for as much as their consumption as possible, and and where that's not possible, um, educate themselves as much as possible, and realize that like cannabis is very dependent on nature. To sustain um, cannabis, we need to support um, responsible practices and imagine what it means to have a healthy relationship with nature and be like, you know, what is the impact of my consumption of these cannabis products um, all the way from from seed to my consumption of it. And just like use use your best judgment um, in the case, you know, you have to purchase a cannabis pro product. Um, I, I know that we really enjoy producing the products that we make. And I wish um, our customers could all experience that. I wish that everybody could come into our kitchen and and uh, to our farm and uh, experience how we do it because, yeah, it's like you, it's it's fun and inspiring and it makes you want to eat the things. I've been doing this since we've started four or five years ago, and I still want uh, I still like get inspired to consume them. I'm not over it, um, and I think that's that's what happens when you um, when you're responsible for the the things that you consume to like consider the the direction that the industry is going and how um, each of us can play a part in contributing to this industry and this plant um, ending up in a place that, you know, we all feel positive about and inspired by. Um, it's just like cons consider nature at every step um, because that's what, that's what this plant depends on first and foremost. I think that's where I stand. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Nathan. Lauren, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. This episode was edited by Jay Nathan. Our music is by Giselle Garcia, and our logo design is by Jennifer Wright. Learn more about Broccoli and subscribe to the magazine at broccolimag.com. Thank you for listening.